Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a guest from overseas. She's over in Ireland, uh, Kathy Louise Reddy. She's at Trinity College, an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Neuroscience. We're going to be talking about the uh, rhythms of the brain and how they might be uh, modulated, controlled, understood, etc. I guess so. Kathy, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, if you would tell me about your research. Um, okay, so we in my lab we use mostly brain-computer interfaces and neurofeedback. And um, by brain-computer interface, I mean somewhere where we're recording from the brain and we are connecting that to a computer system and we are providing the, the user with feedback about something that is ongoing in their brain activity. And by providing that feedback, the user can learn how to control or regulate aspects of their brain function. And in my lab, we use that technique in lots of different ways to help us study the brain and also to try to improve aspects of human behavior. And we also use it clinically um, for um, an application in stroke at the moment as well. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we're working on. Very cool. So what is the brain computer interface look like? Is it a, like an electrode that directly connects to some of the neurons in a person's brain? There are two different ways that we use the brain-computer interface. So the first one is similar to, as you have guessed there, we record from the surface of the scalp. So while some brain-computer interfaces do involve electrodes being placed inside the brain, we typically use non-invasive forms. So we're recording from the surface of the scalp using a, a technique called electroencephalography. So we record electrical brain rhythms or electrical brain signals from the scalp and we use those brain signals to drive feedback on a computer monitor and then we train the person how to use that feedback to change the brain signal. That's that's the first type of brain computer interface. The, the second type is something that um, we invented which is TMS neurofeedback. So that uses transcranial magnetic stimulation, that's the, the TMS part of it, um, and with that type of brain-computer interface, we first stimulate the brain, and the stimulation causes a response in the muscle, depending on where you put it on the scalp. Um, it could be a different muscle depending on you know where it's being placed. So imagine we're using finger muscles. We apply the magnetic stimulation over the part of the scalp that um, you know is, is is directly over the part of the brain that controls the finger muscles. That evokes a response in the muscle. We record that response and we use that as the feedback for the brain-computer interface. So the user then sees that response on screen. They learn how to make the response bigger or smaller. And we train them using a kind of a computer game then connected to this brain-computer interface. So what kind of conditions do people have or these people that are healthy, they're just learning how to use the, uh, the BCI? We, we, we use healthy people in order to test 
the, test these things, basically see how it works, and as a way to investigate normal brain function, because obviously we need to understand normal brain function before we can uh, test any of these things in diseases um, or conditions. But at the moment, we're using the TMS neurofeedback for stroke patients because the stroke patients can't actually move their, their, their arm muscles, for example. So we're targeting upper limb um, in the situation where the stroke patients have a weakness of the upper limb. We are giving them feedback from the muscles that they have problems with and training them with the, the brain stimulation, how to make the responses in the muscles bigger. And we're testing whether over time that will impact upon their, their movement of the limb. So there's you're testing using actual stroke patients or healthy people that are attempting to use the BCI as if they were a stroke patient? Both. So we have currently done this to date using healthy people, but we're coming towards the end of our work with healthy people now. And shortly we're starting up in the hospital in Dublin, testing this with 68 stroke patients. And um, we're just pending our ethical approval for that and waiting for you know the current COVID crisis to um, to ease enough to allow us into the hospital to do the testing with stroke patients. Why not uh, try it on stroke patients initially? Because they would be um, obviously very highly motivated to learn it. They would probably be able to give you insights on how to tune it so that it works better and faster. If you also have a cohort of them, you might get some useful info. Well, we, we have already used it for stroke patients. So um, there's lots of different phases in research. And the first phase was that we tested it on healthy controls and we, we published that. And um, we did a lot of investigation using that data into exactly how it works and what's changing in the brain. And then we did, uh, we called it a feasibility study where we tested this with a small sample of stroke patients. And the feasibility study results were very positive and reassuring. And we were able to demonstrate that the stroke patients could learn how to make the responses in the muscle bigger even though they could not actually move the muscles. So that was the basis then to apply to do a clinical trial in the hospital. So that's the point that we're at now where we're ready to go into the hospital and try it with the stroke patients. So the, the full-scale clinical trial is, is still yet to happen. Okay, so what have you noticed so far in how the BCI works and maybe unexpected things that made it work better or made it harder? Well, it's interesting um, because we do have to we have to train people over a period of time to use this BCI and something interesting is strategies that people use in order to control the feedback on screen so for us it's important that they use a strategy that is coming from their brain so that they're not trying to you know squeeze their muscles to bias the responses for example so we have to very carefully control for any muscle based strategy to controlling the BCI um, but the strategies that people tend to report are quite interesting. So in order to make responses in the muscle bigger, for example, people were reporting that they would imagine moving the muscle, um, imagine you know more forceful movements would cause kind of a bigger change. And in order to make the responses in the muscle smaller, people would report, you know, imagining that the hand is quite still or cold or dead or detached. So these imagine imagination strategies, things that you're thinking about in your brain, particularly thinking about moving or something related to feeling with your limbs, um, that does cause noticeable changes in the brain and noticeable changes in the rhythms that we record from the brain and just the output signals of the brain in general. So 
that was that's something that is quite an interesting um, finding from this is that what's going on in your brain in terms of what you're thinking about and what you're imagining really directly influences the signals that we record, which then influence the brain-computer interface. Yeah, I think like sports coaches have known that for a while. They encourage their players to do that, to think about uh, making the perfect shot, and that helps them in their performance. Yeah, that's correct. And um, I am approached regularly by sports coaches asking how can we use this type of brain-computer interface to help kind of guide the visualization of the players um, in theory, it sounds like that should be quite easy, but actually that's not as easy as it sounds in practice. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy to do it in a sports context. Well, um, in preparation for someone to get the uh, BCI, do you have uh, you know, a person that's had a stroke deliberately try to practice and think of moving their arm, for instance, and train before they ever get it? And maybe compare that to people that haven't trained that just get it and they're completely naive to it, or even the, um, you know, the way to think about it, to imagine their arm moving, et cetera, and see what the difference is there. Uh, yes. So whenever we did this original study, we had two groups. We had the experimental group who did the BCI, and then we also had the control group who did not. Um, so basically, they were still doing everything the same. They had the same magnetic brain stimulation, but they had the feedback they were shown on screen was, was not accurate. So it was not actually representing the response in their muscle. Um, from the research that we've been doing on this over the last few years, we have realized that those strategies are effective strategies to control the size of the responses of the muscle. So we were telling our participants and the control group to use the, the same strategies. So we were able to isolate then that it's, it's, you need the feedback. It's not just using the strategy that actually causes the change. You need to be seeing the feedback on screen to actually learn how to effectively change the brain response. So um, I know your question was, can you tell stroke patients in advance to kind of prepare for the BCI by imagining movements? And we do that to some extent because we, we give them a bit of a familiarization session where we take them in and we show them videos of hand and arm movements. And during the brain-computer interface, they're also watching videos and we tell them to imagine making the same movements. So it's just to really guide their mental strategy and try to get the, the most out of it as possible. You know, the, 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 the biggest change in brain activity, because that's most likely to drive the, the brain-computer interface most effectively. Have you tried it? and Or have you spoken to, uh, I'm sure you've spoken to the patients that have tried it. What, what does it feel like? Do they have any weird feelings or strange sensations or you know what's it like the experience of using this thing well I've, I've used this many times um i've used several types of brain computer interfaces just um mostly using myself as a, a guinea pig to test equipment and make sure everything's working and also the the magnetic brain stimulation is something that we use in lots of different experiments and i've used throughout my career so i've volunteered for many 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 experiments using the magnetic brain stimulation and that feels, um, it, it's very mild. You basically, you feel, you feel nothing on your head whenever the magnetic pulse is discharged. The magnetic pulse causes, uh, you know, it causes a response in the muscle. So you're feeling a twitch in the muscle, but it's really just a very small twitch, sometimes not even visible, but we can record it because we have electrodes stuck onto the muscle in order to record the twitch. So most of what you feel is the twitch um and you hear quite a loud click 
because whenever the magnetic pulse is discharged, it, it makes a clicking noise. Um, in terms of whether you feel anything after using the brain computer interface, I don't think so. But when we did this in the feasibility study, we had stroke patients who were reporting that after a few days of using this, they reported that they could their sensation was better in the stroke affected hand so they said that you know previously they weren't able to feel properly with the, with the hand whereas now they could actually feel things that were being applied to the hand um, and that motivated us to then include other test measures in our clinical trial that's coming up um, because we had not originally planned to measure sensation and whether there were changes in feeling but because the patients were reporting that, we decided to actually quantify that because we can't actually make that statement. I can't even write that in a scientific paper because a stroke patient has just told me that. But we need to record it properly and scientifically in order to be able to make a conclusion. Are you saying there's no room in the paper for any uh, reporting from the patients on what they experienced? You would have to formalize it. So we, we would have needed to prepare a questionnaire, for example, for the patients and ask them all the same questions. Um, you know, otherwise it could just be a biased, a biased report. We could just choose to report what we wanted and say, ah, this patient said this and this patient said that. Um, it, it was a feasibility study, just a very early trial to see basically was all the equipment working, was the proof of principle there that the stroke patients could learn to cause the change in the muscle the same way that the healthy people could. Um, and that motivated then the clinical trial in which we, we are going to record the patient experiences. So we've developed a patient experience questionnaire and we're going to interview them at certain points of the process and ask them what are they feeling and what do they like it? Are they enjoying it? Is it tiring? And um, those kinds of things. But what happens over time? You, you use this interface with your arm. Do you eventually not need it? Do you always need it? Do you start feeling your arm? I mean, what happens? Like the, the idea is that you would not always need to use it. So the interface, the way I see it is that this helps them to guide their motor imagery. So the interface allows them to see that what they imagine with their stroke-affected limb actually causes a change in the stroke-affected limb. And then they use that to practice the, the best strategy, the best imagination strategy, you know, imagining using the stroke-affected limb. And over time, their strategy gets better and better. And we can see that because their motor responses are getting bigger. And then the plan would be to send them home with that and tell them, use that strategy. So practice that in your spare time, practice it at home. You know, imagine making movements, trying to make movements with stroke affected them. Um, ultimately, we do hope to design a different type of brain computer interface that would be like a scaled down version that does not require the magnetic brain stimulation. At the point whenever they can use their muscle a little bit, we could give them feedback from the muscle um, or even give them feedback from the brain rhythms um, potentially ways that we could send home equipment with them that they could continue practicing at home and they wouldn't need to be in the clinic using the type of feedback that we use now with them. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, what's the end goal? That they have full use of the limb or that they have whatever use the BCI gives them? What's the end goal? What's, what are multiple endpoints? I don't think full use of the limb would really be a reasonable expectation for these type of stroke patients. Um, you know, they've experienced brain damage. So that part of the brain is, the, the part that is damaged is not coming back 
what we're trying to do is cause other parts of the brain to take on those functions and encourage plasticity and rewiring the brain because the brain is extremely capable of of rewiring so areas around the stroke affected area will will grow new connections to the muscle and that can only happen whenever you are promoting that connection so whenever you're actually trying to send signals to the muscle um you know it's it's, it works in a use dependent way but the problem is because the stroke patient can't move the limb they're not trying to use it anymore and we want to keep them trying to use it and by using the brain computer interface and the motor imagery it encourages them to keep those parts of the brain active at a time when they would not normally be active so the end goal would be to to cause noticeable improvements in their upper limb function but i think it would be unreasonable to expect that they would have a hundred percent improvement because the type of patients that we're targeting with this are the type of patients who have very 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 poor arm function after the stroke and you know because these are the type of patients that are most suitable for the TMS neurofeedback. If they already were able to use the arm a bit after the stroke, there would be other therapies that would be more suitable for them. So the type of patients that we're targeting are those who have very poor arm function anyway, and therefore full recovery of the limb is, it's not something that we're working towards with this particular therapy. Makes sense. Okay. What's the current protocol without the BCI and what's the range of outcomes right now? Well, at the moment... The gold standard in research at the moment is uh, something called constraint-induced movement therapy. And of course, lots of things are being tested and trialed for helping people recover movement after a stroke. Um, but the constraint-induced movement therapy is showing a lot of um, promise at the moment. And that's basically a technique where you take the stroke-affected arm and constrain it in a, in a cast. Sorry, the other way around, you take the good arm and you constrain it in the cast. And that forces them to use their stroke affected arm. And by forcing them to use the arm for their activities of daily living, it encourages new connections. It encourages them, you know, it it just causes use of the the brain pathways and the the functional recovery of those patients using this constraint and use movement therapy is far superior to patients using any other type of stroke rehabilitation strategy at the moment. Um, but obviously, constraint-induced movement therapy isn't going to work for those patients who really can't move the stroke-affected limb at all. Because if you tie up their good limb and they, they just can't use the stroke-affected limb, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to, you know, to sustain that for several hours of the day, which they would need to do if they were practicing with this constraint-induced movement therapy. So what we would like to do is to use the, the TMS neurofeedback for those patients to help them kind of get past that initial hurdle get them some movement in the limb and then they can move on to something like constraint induced movement therapy where where we can tie up the good limb and force them to use the stroke affected limb. Anything um, useful while a person sleeps or you have to be awake and active and using this to have any benefit? I am not doing any research at the moment into sleep during or, or any sort of um, during sleep stroke rehabilitation. Um, I'm not aware of okay. any evidence on that. Yeah, I was just wondering what happens, but interesting. How long would people, um, how long does it appear that people need to use the BCI to get to their endpoint, you know, as far as they can go with it? Well, we are planning to test these stroke patients over a period of six months, but the the main learning with the the brain-computer interface will be in the first four days. So they will come in for 
an hour and a half per day for four days in order to get the initial learning of how to use it. And then they'll go home or do whatever they were planning to do. We won't interfere in their standard care. Then they come back after two weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks and six months. And they do more sessions and we do, we call that like a top up training. And we'll also do follow up tests and see how well they're getting on and are they performing their their motor imagery at home um, and that sort of thing. So we find in the healthy controls that people can learn how to use this form of BCI. And in the stroke patients that we tested the feasibility study, they were able to do this after four days. So that's why we're starting with a four day kind of boost period and then these top up sessions throughout the six month uh, recovery period. Yeah, what did the healthy people notice? After doing it for a while, did they have um, more fine control over certain movements? Like, what, what did they experience? We were not measuring the movement capabilities of the healthy people, and we we don't really expect to see any changes. That was that was not one of our hypotheses from this study, and um, none of the participants reported any change in their own movement function. Um, and from a from a neuroscientific perspective, that wouldn't even be expected. Oh, so none of the patients said, wow, it's easier to, to do X now that I've used this. None of the healthy controls, you know, healthy controls, obviously, you know, they haven't had a stroke. So, um, but, you know, as I said, in, in the, the small sample stroke patients, a few of them did report, you know, self-reported subjective improvements, but we can't use that as scientific evidence. So we are now collecting data to see whether any of those self-reported um, improvements actually translate to you know a real improvement that we could actually call real from a scientific perspective well even though they were just anecdotal anything from the um the reported uh, improvements what did people say the, the the key thing was the one that i mentioned you know with the stroke patient said that they could feel better with their hand you know they actually, they thought their sensation had improved um there were other stroke patients who said you know they felt like they could spread their fingers better they could just in general have better control of their hand but, you know, you have to be very careful with that sort of thing because there's a very strong placebo effect associated with this type of thing, especially with brain stimulation. When people, you know, they, they know that you're stimulating their brain, you're doing something very sciencey to them and they may expect to see changes. And placebo is one of the most is one of the strongest healers. So. It's very important in our research that we don't draw conclusions from that sort of thing. We need to include a control group. We're going to have 34 participants in a control group in this upcoming clinical trial who will not have the ability to learn the BCI. And those are very important because if they're also seeing improvements, then we know that that's a placebo effect and not a real effect from the TMS brain-computer interface neurofeedback. Good, I got you. Okay. Well, very good. I know it's uncertain, but what's the approximate timetable, do you think, uh, until this, uh, if it works, it may be in clinical use? Well, these kind of things are very, very slow. So if we get this particular clinical trial finished within the next two years, um, well, we have to finish it within the next, we have to finish it within the next two, two and a half or three years um, because we're funded under a research grant that will that we'll finish up in three and a half years and I have a PhD student who's working on this as his project and he will finish in three and a half years. So that will be the end of this clinical trial. And if it is showing efficacy that, that this actually causes some benefit in stroke patients, 
over and above the control group, so the placebo effect. If it's showing efficacy, then we would move on to um, you know, a, a more advanced phase of clinical trial, perhaps with even more participants. And having learned from this early clinical trial, um, we would we would know um, you know the exact protocol that works and how many sessions we really need. Um, we would have fine-tuned the protocol a lot more by then. So this would not be the end point. This would this would warrant another bigger clinical trial, which if that was successful, then um, may allow us to put it into clinics. So the pathway then would be after the next clinical trial, then we would maybe have a demonstrator clinic where we start doing that in Dublin. Uh, and if it's continuing to show efficacy in Dublin, then other other groups in other hospitals may pick up on it. And we are also working on creating kind of a package from this. So software that will be compatible with most hardwares for the brain stimulation and um, you know, recording of the responses and everything so that it would be quite easily picked up by other hospitals and you know, other clinics that want to use the TMS neurofeedback. But we don't want to advance to that stage until we're absolutely sure that it really works over and above the placebo effect. Is there any compassionate use provision to speed it along, or do you think the pace that you're going is is the best you can do? Well, I think that the scientific evidence needs to be there. It, it's more unethical to use something that doesn't work, and there has been quite a lot of that in in this field, and especially in brain computer interface research. And the problem then is that things just get perpetuated and they get used whenever there's not a solid evidence base. Um, companies start developing products and making money off things. And the scientists then are kind of lagging behind saying, hang on, it doesn't actually work. So that's that's what we want to avoid. We need to make sure we do everything in the right order and demonstrate that it actually has enough efficacy to warrant allowing stroke patients to spend their valuable time on it. That's true. Okay. That makes sense. Well, very good. Kathy, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Well, we do have a website. So that's translationalbrainhealth.com because we are the Translational Brain Health Lab. And on there, we plan to keep our news area up to date, things that we're currently working on. Um, my PhD student, Colin Simon, regularly posts updates on, on what we're doing. So we also are on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, that's Kathy Ruddy, or I think I'm actually Ruddy Kathy on Twitter. Um, you can also follow Colin Simon, who is the PhD student who works with me, who will be doing the majority of the work in the hospital. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, those are the best methods to keep in touch with what we're doing. That's great. Well, you're doing a very important thing to help people. So thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Richard. It was, it was really nice talking to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.